Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 35, New Living Translation. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness, because you will have the light that leads to life. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12, New Living Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time pastry consultant. He buys the cookies we keep in the kitchen. Though to be fair, I'm the one who makes sure that we don't run out of animal crackers. Anyway, today on Anchored by Truth, as we start to celebrate the Christmas season, we wanted to continue our series where we focus on Jesus. And we want to continue listening to Crystal Sea's epic Christmas poem, The Golden Tree, Eagle Enigma. Today, we're coming to part four of the poem, where we will now hear about the seemingly unsolvable quandary that will confront our bears. So, do you want to tell us where we are in the story, R.D.? I'd love to. Now, for any listeners who haven't been able to be with us in our last few episodes, we should tell them that The Golden Tree, Eagle Enigma is a poem that's written in the style of some of the classic Christmas stories. It's actually the second of The Golden Tree series. The first segment is called The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest, but all of these stories are written using the model of the old-time movie serials that they used to play when I was a kid, and you'd go to the theater on Saturday afternoons. Before the main movie, they would give you the latest installment of an ongoing saga that involved heroes and heroines and villains. And each one of those episodes of the serial would end with the heroes and the heroines left in a precarious position. So next week, you'd have to come back to the theater and plunk down another quarter or two to see how or whether or not the hero or heroine gets out of that desperate situation they were in. So to get ready for part four, which we're going to play today on Anchored by Truth, Listeners need to know that this poem is a Christmas epic, and it's all about a group of small koala bears who are on a quest searching for the lair of what they call the Great White Koala Bear. Now, they started this quest because even though these koala bears live in the Arctic, they live near a golden tree that creates a peaceful and fertile valley that's suitable for them to have a village. Now, the bears have lived near the golden tree for generations, but the tree is now threatened. Last Christmas, a demon lord and his horde of marauding minions marched into the town, and during the ensuing confrontation, the Golden Tree's guardian at the time, a bear named Komari, was lost. Now, since Komari was lost, no new guardian for the tree has been found. So when we left off the story the last time, three of the koala bears named Kodan, Koru, and Kojan 
had set out on a quest to find the lair of the great white koala bear to ask for his help. Now, these three bears have been traveling through blizzard conditions for days, and they have just climbed the highest peak yet that they have had to encounter. Now, they hope that after this last climb, that maybe they would find their goal. That was what their hope was, but maybe not. All right, then. So, let's continue with the story. Here's part four of Crystal Sea Books' Christmas epic poem, The Golden Tree, Eagle Enigma. The scene that spread below the three bears dealt their spirits a crushing blow, for stretching completely from east to west was a deep, dark canyon in the snow. Where the great canyon began, they had no clue, nor could they see to its end. They could easily see that it stretched so wide it could only be crossed by the wind. The great gap pressed the mountain's base, upon whose top they lay. And beyond the gap, steeper heights they saw, that would further bar their way. These far mountain ranges were not like their own. Only the highest peaks had snow. Their bases and sides had colorful bands, arched tints of a rocky rainbow. At the base of the range lay indigo stripes, then came deep purple bands. Dusty violet and blue were seen topped by snow with bright pink strands. And dancing throughout the colorful slopes were deep hues of trees evergreen. And cascading down the towering peaks were torrentially rushing streams. Even more striking than the mountains below was a sky with glory everywhere streaming, an azure canvas stretched over the peaks, golden beams throughout gleaming. The bright beams pierced up into cobalt hue that swirled in currents climbing high, till the layers merged into midnight blue that was pierced by echoing cries. The startling sky enthralled the bears, for none could have imagined this sight. There in the distance, the koalas felt sure was an answer to the town's dire plight. For beyond the gap, the highest peak was glowing with the aura of a bright golden realm that gleamed with radiance so sure and pure the bears' minds were soon overwhelmed. For a moment, the bears feasted their eyes on the wondrous and glorious sight. Then above the scene, their attention was caught by great ice eagles in flight. The ice eagles soared with effortless ease above the color-strewn peaks, and the bears could hear from where they lay shrill and haunting shrieks. The shrieks seemed to demand the bears come forth to meet them in their sky. And the more the bears heard the strange, strong calls, their hearts grew terrified. Very nearly did the bears want to turn away 
so strong was the fear in their minds. But they remembered the task still at hand, a way to cross the gap they must find. They finished their crossing of the mountain's top from which they had surveyed the scene, and they descended the half-day to the gap, considering what the chasm must mean. For the closer they drew, the wider it became, till they knew it was impossible to cross. When they finally stopped at its sheer drop edge, they stood completely at a loss. The chasm was deep, no bottom could they see, and the sides were as smooth as glass. It was far too wide for them to bridge. There was simply no way to pass. As they stared over the impassable gulf, they again heard the eagles so clear. They fled fast away from their stand on the edge, which had greatly increased their fear. As they huddled beneath a ledge of rock, Kojan and Karoo did sigh. Kojan said, It seems we are stopped, for the canyon before is too wide. Kodan was silent as he looked at the gulf, and then he quietly looked away. He spoke in firm, faith-hardened voice. There can be only one way. Wow. So not only are the bears now facing an uncrossable canyon, there are huge ice eagles circling over the canyon. I guess the bears think that those eagles might be an even greater danger than trying to cross the canyon itself. This is an enigma. So, how can the bears solve their dilemma? Well, I guess folks will just have to tune in next time and see what happens. I'm starting to see why the movies played those serial episodes before they played the main feature years ago. Well, as a kid, the trick was not to eat all of your popcorn during the serial part of the movie. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any popcorn left to enjoy during the main feature. Now, it helped if you had enough money in those days to buy a large bag of popcorn, because there were no buckets of popcorn in those days. Today, I think some of us need to worry about waistlines more than money. (laughs) No comment. Anyway, maybe one of the lessons we can learn from the bears is that we need to understand the challenges to our faith can come to us at any time. We need to be prepared to intelligently respond to them. And Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 does tell us that the sword of the Spirit is the Bible, the Word of God. That's one of the big reasons we try to encourage people to develop the habit of staying in the Word. It's the best way for us to cope with our own ice eagles. So, where do you want to go today as we resume our study of Jesus' earthly life? Well, in our last couple of episodes on Anchored by Truth, we've talked about the fact that there are extra-biblical sources that do confirm that Jesus was a real person who lived and died in Judea during the early part of the first century A.D. But naturally, the only thing that the secular writers could write about was the human dimension of Jesus. And so if the secular writers had been the only source of our information about Jesus, we would miss some very important details about him. But we would completely miss the most important fact about Jesus. Jesus was not only fully human, but Jesus was also fully divine. 
And here is where a lot of headaches begin. How can one person be both God and man? I think it's safe to say that many Christians, even serious and devout ones, have trouble with this concept. So, let's go over some of the basics of historical Orthodox Christian theology. The Trinitarian nature of God and the dual nature of Jesus. A lot of confusion arises because people don't understand what Christians mean when they refer to the Trinity or the dual nature of Christ. So, let's start there. Well, let's acknowledge right at the start that there are limitations to human language, especially when it comes to the incomprehensibility of God. Humans are finite. God is infinite. So there is no way that any human, or group of humans for that matter, is ever going to be capable of exhaustively understanding or explaining the nature of God or the mystery of the incarnation of Christ. Now, that does not mean that we cannot know some true things about God and develop a strong awareness of the miracle of the incarnation. But it does mean that mysteries, some level of mystery, will always remain. But the fact that mysteries will always remain doesn't mean that we should not apply ourselves to develop a full-orbed understanding of God insofar as we are able to using our human minds. And it also means that we should always approach these subjects in a spirit of reverence and prayer, right? I mean, the one person who can help us grow in our understanding is the very person we're seeking to understand. So, What does the doctrine of the Trinity refer to? Well, Orthodox Christian theology believes that the Bible refers to one God, but acknowledges that that one God exists eternally as three divine subsistences or persons. Now, the classic proof text for the Trinitarian view of the Godhead is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19. And those verses say, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, a slightly different way of explaining this concept is that God is singular in nature, but three in person. By contrast, Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, is singular in person, but has two natures. Jesus is one person, but that one person has two natures. Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. And the classic formulation of Jesus' dual nature came out of the Council of Chalcedon, and that classic formulation reads this way, Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, having two natures inseparably united in one divine person, without confusion, mixture, separation, or division. Each nature retains its own attributes. So those views explain why Christians still believe in one God, we're monotheistic, but we also believe that within the Godhead, there are three distinct persons who have a relationship with each other. Grappling with these concepts is challenging, to say the least. And that's the reason that we always have to be willing to acknowledge that even though the Church has classic formulations of these doctrines, like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, and those creeds help to amplify the basics, again, these doctrines will always contain a certain amount of mystery for men. 
We're back to the simple fact that a finite man cannot fully understand or explain an infinite triune God. So how do our opening scriptures relate to this who discussion? At least on the surface, while Jesus is certainly providing some really comforting assurances to his disciples, such as that he will provide for them and protect them like a shepherd does his sheep, how do these verses demonstrate that Jesus was claiming to be God? Well, in English, the claim is not as obvious as it was in the language in which John originally recorded his gospel, which was Greek. In Greek, the words that are translated as I am, as in I am the bread of life, and in the other scripture we heard, there are two Greek words that are translated as I am, ego and emi. And these are exactly the same words that God used when he made declarations about himself in the Old Testament. As in the declaration that God made to Moses when Moses was standing before the burning bush recorded in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Let me read that part. Quote, but Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said that Moses should say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations." Unquote. Exactly. The Septuagint translators, when they translated the Hebrew Yahweh, which came from the word for I am, translated it by using a combination of two different Greek words used for the verb to be. And those words, as we've already said, were ego and emi. So in Jesus' time, the phrase ego emi came to be synonymous with the name of God. In Hebrew, that name was Yahweh. In Greek, it's Jehovah. So when the Apostle John recorded what Jesus said about Jesus being the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, John used the phrase ego emi for the words I am. Now, many scholars think that when Jesus identified himself with the I am, he was directly proclaiming to his followers that he was the same one who had appeared to Moses. But there are other references in the Old Testament to which Jesus may have been pointing to make the same point. Michael J. Kruger, who is a New Testament scholar and the president of the Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, has shown that there are a number of I am references in chapters 40 to 55 of the book of Isaiah, and those references unmestakably point to God. So let's listen to a couple of those examples. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 4 and Isaiah chapter 43 verse 10. Isaiah 41 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. And that I am he is ego emi. Isaiah 43.10 You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Again, that I am he, ego emi. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. The I am he in these passages, again, is translated in Greek, by ego emi. 
So when Jesus said that he was the bread of life or the light of the world, he was going beyond simply giving metaphors for the provisions that he was making for his people. He was saying that one of the reasons his followers could have confidence in the promises that he was giving was because he was God. And as God, whatever he promised, he had the irresistible power to fulfill. I'm starting to get another headache when I think about that. Imagine listening to someone standing before you who was saying, quote, I am the light of the world, unquote, meaning he would give you all the light and wisdom you would ever need, and then realizing that the one making the promise was the one who made light to begin with. That's a staggering thought. And it gets even more staggering. Remember that on Anchored by Truth, we often talk about the fact that logic and empirical observations demonstrate that the universe had to have been created by a self-existent being. And we call that self-existent being God. We can arrive at the need for a self-existent being to explain the existence of the universe and everything in the universe just by making some informed observations. In other words, as people we have the ability to deduce the existence of a self-existent being, or God, just by exercising reason, observation, and intelligence. Well, when God said to Moses that his name was I Am, God was identifying himself by using the attribute of self-existence. God was simultaneously exalting Moses by saying, You're standing in the presence of the one who made everything, and God was also condescending to the level of a man by communicating to Moses in a way that Moses could understand. So when God said, I am that I am, he was making a statement so profound, human minds and wisdom can scarcely comprehend it. God was also pointing out to Moses when he said that, that Moses should be aware of God's existence because Moses' own intellect and intelligence would have revealed to him the need for God, even if God had never chosen to communicate with him directly. And the same thing would have been true of the people listening to Jesus, wouldn't it? Only now, rather than people listening to a voice out of a burning bush, they're hearing those words from a man standing in front of them. And many, if not most, of them would have seen Jesus perform miracles, so they would have known that when Jesus spoke, he was speaking the truth. But I think you have one more point that you're making with this line of reasoning, aren't you? Exactamundo. Exactamundo again. Okay. Precisely, if you prefer. Think about it. By making empirical observations and exercising a little logic and reason, we can arrive at the conclusion that the universe was created by a self-existent being, God. But where did we derive the ability to make those observations? Where did we get the eyesight that could see the sun and stars? Where did we get the intellect and reasoning ability to design instruments that could amplify our observational capabilities, like telescopes or microscopes? Where did we get the reasoning ability to understand that an effect demands a cause, and that the law of non-contradiction is an essential element in reasoning correctly? Where did we get the ability to write and use language, and make and retain records so we could pass words and observations down over thousands of years? And not just the records that are contained in the Bible, but also the other records that we've examined on Anchored by Truth, like in our last couple of episodes where we've observed that there are even secular historians who have affirmed that Jesus was a real man and who lived in Judea at a particular time in history. The observation that we're making here is that human logic and reason will reveal, if they're applied properly, 
the need for God. So we can arrive at the need for there to be a self-existent being that creates the universe. We can arrive at that if we just apply logic and reason to the evidence that we can see all around us in the world and in the universe in which the world is set. So the point you're making is that the same God who designed and created the universe with all its marvelous complexity and order also created us in such a way that we could perceive him. And you're saying that the same God came to various men at different points in history, to Moses and Isaiah in the Old Testament, to Matthew, John, and others in the New Testament, to leave us a record of his appearances in this world. So you're saying that God designed man so that he could recognize not only the design in nature, but also the design in God's plan for human history, the plan that we call the plan of creation, fall, and redemption. Oh, all that is either super scary or super exciting. Yeah, it's rather like the disciples in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm, or Moses when he was in front of the burning bush in the immediate presence of the Almighty God. An immediate confrontation in the undeniable presence of the Almighty is simultaneously both terrifying and thrilling. And unfortunately, there are far too many people today who deny themselves the experience, that marvelous experience of reverential awe, because they will not truly grapple with the authentic nature of God and Jesus. And only the Bible gives us what we need to understand that nature. And we all need to have a better understanding of that nature. Because when we gain it, we will find out that God is not only an awesome and mighty God, but he is also a loving and merciful God who has made provisions for us to have eternal fellowship with him by placing our faith in Jesus as our Savior. So, let's close with a prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer of adoration for the first person of the Trinity, our Heavenly Father. A Prayer of Adoration of the Father Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we praise you and adore you and bow down before you. We are overcome by thoughts of your majesty and excellence, and we humbly come to you to worship you in spirit and in truth. We know from your word that you are a God in whom there is no imperfection, want, or lack. You are perfect in all of your attributes and all of your ways. Because you are the source of all light and illumination, there is no shadow or dark place in you. All creation stands in silent awe when it turns toward you. You dwell in the loftiest of the high places, surrounded by the angels that you created to serve you. Glory is your robe, power is your mantle, exaltation your drape, and sovereignty your cloak. Mere words could never describe your grandeur, yet we are exalted as we try. You alone are God. There is no other God like you. There never has been, and there never will be. There will come a time when you will fully exercise your dominion as is fitting and right, and you will set right all that does not conform to your will. We look toward that day when we can stand breathless and amazed at your beauty and holiness. 
Until that time, let us grow in the knowledge and appreciation of your unmatched glory and let all honor, praise, and worship be given only to you. In Christ's name, let all who know him praise the Lord. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. So if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one over again, all these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time as we continue our discussion of the reality of Jesus' life. We hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of the show. Also, we'd like to remind listeners that copies of The Golden Tree, Kamari's Quest, are available from our website. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is. Hi, I'm R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books. Have you ever had trouble explaining to a friend or relative why you believe the Bible is true and trustworthy? If so, you're not alone. That's why every Tuesday morning on Wave FM, we discuss how you can be assured that the Bible that you trust is the inspired Word of God. Join us on Tuesdays at 11.30 a.m. for an opportunity to grow your faith, deepen your confidence, and learn that the Bible really can give you victory in Jesus.